0: That's not for me, so. All right, little April Fools on Jeans. I always knew I was loved. I just, you've never shown me before in such a powerful way. That's actually pretty creative. About every every four or five years, those guys break through with something that's decent. Oh, gosh. Because they know how I go crazy when phones go off. (laughs) All right. Uh, Church, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. I'm still thinking about Jake telling you, you know, to come and stump me. I mean, that only takes the first few seconds, you know, of the class. But uh, he's just being nice. Acts chapter 5. We're studying through the entire book of Acts. We're doing it a verse at a time, a chapter at a time. We find ourselves in chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to look down into verse 26. An angel sets the 12 apostles free from the common prison, and tells them to return to the mission Jesus has given them of proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. The title of our message, Angels in the Mission Field. There was a famous movie called Angels in the Outfield. Some of you (laughs) who maybe once lived in Southern California, you know, uh, saw that movie, but anyway. I know you're sitting thinking, yeah, that's right, there were angels in the mission field. Yeah, wow, cool. Anyway, (laughs) verse 17, I'm off to a really big start here this morning, I just, I feel it. I feel the love and I feel the excitement in this, you know. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Let's pray together. Lord, there's always a sense, or should be at least, when we get together that you are trying to speak to us in ways that we're ordinarily not uh, attending to. You brought us together, Lord. You pour out your spirit. Our hearts are knit together, one with another, and uh, as we praise you and offer that, Lord, like incense going before your throne. And there's just a a different preparation, not better, not worse, just a different preparation than we do at home or at other times. And, And there's a sense of your presence just here ministering one heart to another, touching each life, revealing yourself, manifesting yourself. You always choose to do it through your word, and we have your word in front of us. We've heard it read, and now we want it to come into our lives, Lord, and, and, and find us receptive, hearers, ready, Lord, to understand how it reveals your romance for us, your love for us, how that you've come to sit with us, Lord, and, and embrace us, really, with this word. I pray, Lord, that we would be much different leaving this place than when we came. Touched, Lord, by your love and grace, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I want you to think of your favorite vacation spot. As you are resting or recreating there, have you ever said to yourself or those with you, ah, this is the life. Now think of the apostles of Jesus Christ. They are itinerant preachers of a message that has brought them into conflict with the religious authorities. Two of them had been previously detained. Now all of them had been imprisoned. They were set free, but told to go right on with the activity that would ensure their continuing persecution. Yet with real enthusiasm, they proclaimed to everyone who would listen, this is the life. The word for life appears for the first time in the book of Acts, and that's why I'm focusing on that. Of course, they were talking about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The word is used about 36 times in the New Testament. Often it's used as a synonym for the Lord himself. But it is also a description of your daily experience with Jesus. In John 10, verse 10, the Lord said, I have come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Every blessing and every buffeting is a platform from which you can stand and say, This is life. I'll organize my thoughts about these verses around two points. Number one, submit to God and experience his life. Or number two, covet the world and you will miss his life. First of all, beginning in verse 17, submit to God and you will experience his life. Look at your own life and its circumstances. Some of us seem to be going through testings and trials. We might almost think of them as a prison because we see no way out of them. We are nevertheless called upon to proclaim in them, this is the life. Some of you have it made in the shade, as we used to say a million years ago. But wait a minute. When you proclaim, this is the life, are you talking about your relationship with Jesus? Or are you settling into the comforts and conveniences you have been blessed with? To enjoy. The Christian life is the life, whether you are blessed or buffeted, abounding or being abased. The twelve apostles knew it, and the point of our passage is that you and I want to know it too. A key to the attitude of the twelve was their submission to God and to his authority. Later in this chapter, Peter, speaking for them all, will say, we ought to obey God, rather than men, and that was the bottom line, rubber meets the road for them. They always obeyed God, and if it came into conflict with other men, they continued to obey God. Submitting to God's authority put them or kept them right where God wanted them. God then filled them with his spirit to experience his life in their real-life circumstances. And so I want to note some of the qualities of their submission to God. We talk about being submitted, but I think there's, a, there's some qualities of submission here that we can draw out. And the first one is, it was an active submission to God. They were busy serving Him. They weren't getting more training. They weren't putting their own affairs in order. They weren't waiting until their careers ended and had more free time. Now, it sounds a little bit silly to apply some of those things to the apostles, but th- these were common men at one time, men of like passions with you and I. Fishermen, not, not fishermen in the sense that you and I are fishermen, where we, you know, go buy some equipment at the fish place and go down and cast our lure, you know, in the canal or something. I mean, they, it wasn't recreational fishing that they were. They were professional fishermen. They owned fishing businesses, They were tax collectors. They they had real lives. And Jesus called them away from those lives. And after he rose from the dead, he he told them, your life now is is that of an itinerant minister of the gospel. And they were busy serving the Lord in that way. Uh, God has called upon each of us to serve him now, right where we are. All of us are in full-time ministry, whether we, we consider it full-time ministry, the way the world looks at it, or whether we're continuing at a job or in a career or somewhere else, we're, we're available to the Lord. And it's, our submission has a certain quality to it when we understand that, Lord, wherever I am, I am submitted to you. I'm only here. Yes, I'm, I'm getting an education. That's a great thing. Yes, I'm pursuing my career, and I, I thank you for it because I love what I'm doing, and I'm maybe even doing good for people in my career, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But, Lord, more than anything else, I obey you rather than men. I know that I'm here to hear from you and to do what you are calling me to do at all times, and, and we're, we're not waiting for anything. We're already listening to the Lord, and that a, that's a, raises our submission to a much higher quality. The apostles were daily in the temple preaching to large crowds. The church numbered perhaps more than 10,000 men and women. I don't know how many could gather together at once there at Solomon's porch in the temple, but by this time in the history of the church, it was a mega church. The first church was a mega church. They went from 120, which is an average-sized church, to a church of 10,000 in just a few weeks. If you want to know about church growth, that's what you should study. And what was their only secret? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. There were no programs. There was no methodology. They didn't even take offerings, as far as I can tell. People just gave them things. It was fantastic. We have all these schemes and methods today that ignore just the plain outworking of the Spirit of God. Besides the numerical growth, there were many signs and wonders and miracles that were being performed through these men, God doing it. God was drawing a line in the sand. Either you believed in Jesus and you were being added to the church or you remained in unbelief. It was either or. The religious leaders, sadly... Think of that. The religious leaders chose to remain steadfast in their unbelief, and we're going to see why this morning. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all those with him, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. The nation of Israel was subject to Rome, but had limited local authority to handle their own affairs. The Jews were led by what was called the Sanhedrin. It was a ruling body of 70 men plus the high priest who presided over it. The Sanhedrin was dominated by a party within it known as the Sadducees. They were wealthy Jews who worked hard at keeping the status quo. Life under Roman rule wasn't so bad for them. In fact, it was very good. They were happy with things just the way they are, religiously, politically. They were living large, living the good life. Now the apostles were going around performing miracles, Their message was contrary to the traditional Jewish teachings. They were drawing huge, enthusiastic crowds and had thousands of followers. Of course it caused indignation among the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. It was going to interfere with their daily life, with their position, with their power and influence. And so they ratcheted up their opposition. And in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Living and proclaiming the life of Christ landed them in the public jail. Not my idea of the ideal life. Is it yours? I mean, when you sign on for Christianity, do you think, man, God, get me to jail as quickly as possible. I just throw me in the new jail so that I can see what that's all about. The apostles were living to be pleasing God. It landed them in a prison. But you see that it set them free, really, to serve the Lord. And this teaches you that a believer submitted to God does not gauge life by circumstances. We, we would look at them and say they're in prison, and they would say, no, we're not. Paul the Apostle, when he wrote his letters, he would say, oh, okay, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Well, wait a minute, you're, you're in prison, you're under house arrest. Okay, if you insist but it's only by the divine design of Jesus Christ. I am his prisoner, and it's kind of cool. He's given me some time to rest and think and meditate and write. A little bit later, he's going to give me three years' worth of house arrest so that I can get to Rome without paying a dime. And, uh, you know, that's the attitude that these guys had. I've told you this kind of little, you know, illustration before, but... You know, maybe you're out in the courtyard later and you see somebody and say, hey, how are you doing? And they might say something like, well, I'm okay under the circumstances. And then you say to them, what are you doing living down there? You don't want to be under your circumstances as if there's some weight. They're God's sovereignly designed situation in order for you to be seated with Him in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father, setting your affection on things above, seeing how His Spirit can explode in your circumstances. Set them on fire. Turn the world upside down. Verse 19, at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The existence and ministry of angels is abundantly taught in God's word. They are created beings in their own classification. In other words, people don't die and then, you know, become angelic and, and work off their salvation and then get promoted. Michael Landon notwithstanding. <laughs> you know, some Christians, it's so tough being a Christian, isn't it? If you want to, there's almost nothing you can watch in the movies or on television anymore. I mean, there's, and, and so anything that's partway moral, you jump on, man, we got to watch this, you know. I know it's biblically inaccurate. It's a complete heresy, but man, this is good yeah. stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's tough being a Christian out there. You almost have to get rid of your TV set. And so they are these created beings. At one time, a third of them fell in rebellion siding with Lucifer, who is now Satan. But two-thirds of them, the Bible says, kept their first estate, and they're available to God to carry out his providential purposes in the world. One of them is dispatched to free the apostles from prison, and he gives them this message. He says in verse 20, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They were set free to go on doing exactly what got them thrown in jail. Of course they were. What else could they do? We need that kind of resolve in our daily lives. When life at home or at work or even in the church seems to be going against us, we should go on living it right where we are in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Your circumstances or the other person don't need to change in order for you to experience God's abundant life. We qualify that. Obviously, there are some circumstances that are extremely evil, that are violent, that are wicked, that we would not encourage you to remain in. I've said for many, many years, if you're a wife being physically abused by your husband, you should call the police. And chances are, one of the guys who's a cop in our fellowship will come and hook you up, and then you'll be doubly busted for being a jerk. And, and you know, that kind of thing. So I understand that. We're not saying, you know, we would never send somebody back into an abusive situation, never tell a, you know, a, people to overlook child abuse or any of this weird stuff like that. You understand that's in a whole nother category. I'm talking about just the the run-of-the-mill every day. You're going to work today or tomorrow, and your boss is mean to you. Your fellow employees are playing more than practical jokes on you. And, you know, I mean, it's just awful. Conditions are awful, and there you are living under those circumstances. You need the resolve to go back into it and say, hey, what else am I going to do? This is the life. This is why I am filled with the Holy Spirit, so that I can... I can overcome this circumstance so that I can share Christ in the midst of this. Submitting to God means we recognize that He is at work in those circumstances. Verse 21 When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. I'm not sure when they were released, but as early as possible, they were back on the job. Uh, They were excited to get there, they didn't take a short sabbatical. They didn't go on a retreat to recharge their spiritual batteries. They didn't go in for some kind of counseling. These are the things that we do today. I like to exaggerate these things, but there's a, there's a truth to them. Oh, got, I'm getting beat up at work, man. Oh, you need to take... You need some time for yourself, brother. <laughs> you know, you need to... You know, you need probably... A, a, you know, I'd recommend there's a retreat every weekend, you know, that there's a, somewhere there's a retreat you can go to, and um, let's set up a series of counseling appointments for you until you feel, like, really pumped again, you know, bump it up, you know, so that you're really ready f- to live the Christian life. How about, y- you, you want to take a trip to the coast, or, you know, you want to get in touch with the ocean, or something like that. <laughs> I mean, these guys, they've been thrown in jail. And, I mean, it was getting worse. First Peter and John, now all 12 of them. And they knew that their message was going to bring them into conflict. And the angel said, you're out of jail to go on doing what you kept doing. And they were excited about it. I could guarantee you there wasn't one of those 12 guys who wanted any time off. I know Peter and John once uh, ran to to see if the tomb of Jesus was empty. I think these guys had a foot race to Solomon's porch. Poor Peter, he's a big, oafish kind of guy. I can't make it. But if I'm him, he probably tied John's legs together while he was sleeping that night, you know. And so, oh, let's go. You know, and John falls on his face. and I think Nathaniel probably was first, but that's just me. Anyway, why not? These are real men who are excited about this. This is like you and I getting up tomorrow morning and saying, I don't want to go to work because... You know, it's just rough there. Okay, well, you're probably not going to get arrested for preaching the gospel, uh, so tough it out. Immediate and zealous obedience is the mark of submitting to God, otherwise we are all talk and no walk. The apostles experienced the life in ways we long after. I mean, really, don't you look? Every sincere Christian, when you read the book of Acts, you think, man, I want that. I want, I want that kind of thing happening in my life. And then you stop and you think, except the imprisonments and the stonings and living in caves and you know, things like that. I mean, I just want the power part, not the, <laughs> not the difficult part. But it's true. I mean, if we're, there's, there's a part of our spirit that leaps when we read these stories because we know that what was possible for these men is still potential and possible for us. We will experience life to the extent we have this same quality in our submission to God. We'll have a joy that cannot be quenched by being abased or in abounding. We rise above the material and the physical and live in the spiritual. Such a Christian is always going to be a target of the enemy. The religious leaders had a bullseye on the apostles, but they would miss their mark and look silly in the process. And so again in verse 21, Covet the world, and you will miss his life. Take another look at our buddies in the Sanhedrin. In many ways, they represented the cream of Jewish culture. They were living the lifestyles of the rich and famous. People respected them. Those who did not respect them envied them, which gives you even greater satisfaction. If you're not a Christian, and you're in the world, and people I mean, you, you dig it when people respect you, and when people are, you know... They don't respect you, but they envy you. you. You dig it even more because you're still on the top. Those, uh, th- that was their attitude. They were abounding and thought that they had need of nothing. They were, we would say, in a blanket way, comfortable. But they were also covetous. Here was a genuine movement of God in their midst. The Lord was giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, Cripples and paralytics were leaping and jumping. Demons were being confronted and cast out, freeing their human host to be healed and made whole. Yet the Sanhedrin opposed it. Why? Because they coveted their own position with its power. Even the genuine work of God was despised because they coveted the world and the things of the world. They denied the supernatural even though it was right in front of them. People do this all the time. There's a story, I believe it's Luke 16, where the rich man and Lazarus die, and one goes to paradise, one goes to uh, the other compartment, Hades. And at one point, the rich man who's in Hades suffering, he says, man, let me go back and tell my brethren the truth, because they'll believe someone who has risen from the dead, or at least come back from the dead. And Abraham says, they have the law and the prophets. Let them believe those. And and people, you know, if you're not a believer here this morning, you'll shrug your head at this, but Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is the most notable miracle, perhaps, in the history of the world. It is provable beyond the shadow of a doubt. It's in history. It's historical. And you say, who believes that? And it's true. If, If someone rose from the dead, someone has risen from the dead. Nobody believes it. Because they want to continue in their unbelief, because there is a covetousness. There's a sense in the unbeliever, in the non-believer that there's something in the world that will satisfy me. And sometimes too late, you find out that God has put eternity in your heart, and the only satisfaction is a spiritual satisfaction that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in picking up the story in the middle of verse 21, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. All the Sanhedrin was convened. Now, this is a big deal. Like other ruling or government bodies, you don't always have everybody there. And, and the more people involved, the less full attendance you have. I mean, whether it's city council or uh, board of supervisors, or then you get into congresses and senates and legislative bodies, it's really rare that you have everybody together, plus all these other important dignitaries. And so what's happening is the Sadducee party within the Sanhedrin put the word out saying, hey, you all are going to be here today because we're going to deal with this. And what they're really doing is setting up a huge intimidation against all 12 apostles. They're going to show them and put on display their authority and their power under the Roman government to deal with issues. You ever gone into a meeting like that where you are being intimidated by your superiors? Usually it's when you're asking for a raise. And, you know, they have the the big gun from corporate who's probably just your boss's brother standing in or something, you know. But, I mean, I've been to meetings like that, intimidation meetings where the outcome is assured, uh, you know. If you haven't been in a meeting like that, you're really missing it. They're a lot of fun. No, they really are if you're a Christian. But if you haven't, you can see one in the movie, the award-winning movie Chariots of Fire. There's a scene there where Eric Little... And his religious convictions are to not run on the Sabbath day. And his qualifying heat, I think it is, is on the Sabbath. And so he tells the British government he can't run. And they, oh, yeah, that's okay. We understand. Boy, we need more men like you. And, hey, by the way, come and meet, uh, you know, the Prince of Wales or something like that. I forget exactly who. And he comes into this meeting. It's this huge hall and these really august austere men are sitting there smoking you know cigars and all britished out you know and stuff and in a way only the british can do I mean, they're, they're outbritting the Brits, you know, and here's their, and, and I mean, it's a very, I love that scene. It is a powerful scene if you've ever been in a meeting like that, and they are just hammering him for love of country and isn't the love of country the same thing as the love of God and all of this, and it's pretty powerful, and he, he will not relent, and he finally leaves. And I forget the comment, but, but one of the guys there realized, he goes, well, it's a good thing he didn't. Relent, because the whole government would have fallen in on us. Basically, is what he said. It's a very, very interesting scene. If we were more of a media, you know, uh, seeker-sensitive church, I would have just showed that this morning, and we would have been done. But anyway, <laughs> well, that's what's happening. You know, that's the big thing in churches now is to show clips from movies. And uh, I don't know. I, I do sometimes. You know, some things in movies. The end of the bear. Have you ever seen the bear? How many of you have seen the bear? That's got to be the greatest thing in the history of movies. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you about it. You're going to have to go see it. So here they were, gathered to throw their weight around in order to maintain their power and authority. They would have timed and scripted all of the movements of this event. This wasn't a random happening. This This was big. They would have taken their seats, put on their game faces. Everybody ready? Bring the prisoners. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, and can you imagine these guys? How long does it take to go from the prison to here? I mean, these guys, you know, these are serious guys that are in a bad mood. (laughs) So these guys return and report saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. This is really comical now if you see this whole scene. And then in one fleeting moment, God broke their authority and their power. Just like that, God God says, you have no authority and no power. They had the power and the authority under Rome to incarcerate individuals, put them on trial under their own laws, but not execute them. And so they were exercising the epitome of their power, and God says, I'm just going to let those guys out and put them back right where they were. And he might as well have just sent Western Union with a telegram saying, you have no real power or authority. Sure, he would allow them to persecute, hurt, and even martyr these men and their followers. But you understand they had no real power over them. We must understand, again, that the worst that the world can do is to kill us yet it matters not because we will be absent from our bodies and present with the Lord. Verse 24, now when the high priest, captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. They could not foresee the outcome because they could not control the situation. They were dealing with forces and power beyond anything they had ever confronted. God was in control. He always is. We forget his sovereignty and providence in our lives to our detriment. It causes us unnecessary stress, spiritual stress. Verse 25, so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. It would have been better for the Sanhedrin if the apostles had fled. At least then they would be able to brand them as criminals. By returning to the same place... And to the same preaching that had landed them in jail, they were establishing beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was in charge. Verse 26, then the captain went with his officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. The apostles did not resist. They were not advocating some sort of revolution against authority or overthrow of government. They were demonstrating a return to God's authority covetousness is the is what i'm calling the problem here with these worldly religious leaders it's something that can eat away even at our submission to god as christians the desire for the comforts and benefits of this world will always interfere with submission And it's an especially big problem in America where we are all so materially blessed. If we are not constantly on our guard, we risk becoming like the Sadducees. It happens slowly over time. We become a little bit more encrusted. And it eventuates in a situation where I find perhaps that I'm not doing anything sacrificial anymore in my serving of the Lord. I mean, these guys. Sure, I, I'm. I'm with you. I look at these guys. I mean, this is. If you want to say, obviously, they're You know, we're all the same. We're the, all of like passions. But you know, look at a guy like Paul the Apostle, who will meet in a few chapters, or or these other apostles, and I mean, they were completely 100% sold out to God. Uh, they cared nothing for the things of this world, for any of its position or power or authority or any. Uh, and and you know. You, just, you see that, and you think, well, I, you know, I'm not called to that. I'm not an apostle. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a, I, do, you know, I have this career, and I have this goal, and all of that. And that's fine. God knows that. He hasn't called us all to do that. Even in the first church, they weren't. They sent out Paul and Barnabas. They didn't all go out. So that's not the issue. The issue is within what I am called to do or who I'm called to be. I can develop dullness to hearing from God, to where I'm not making any sacrifices. Sometimes, even in my own life, I hear myself talking. It's like, what am I saying? I I don't have the time. It's too far. I was up too late. Oh, my gosh. Keith Green needs to come back and, and give us a concert I always joke with the guys in leadership about Keith Green. I mean, remember Christian rocker Keith Green? He has a line in one of his songs that I love. He said, it's, "I always think of it at Easter time." He says, "Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't get out of bed." I love it because it just puts things. I mean, it's a it's an exhortation, it's a rebuke, but it puts things into perspective. Sometimes I get this mentality. I think I've gotten worse living in Hanford. You know. Pam will say, honey, we're out of milk. And I say, oh, honey, you know, I got to go all the way to the store. (laughs) When I lived in Southern California, I drove 50 miles to get to work. And then I drove 150 miles a day and then 50 miles home from work. I don't think it's a mile to save Mart from my house. (laughs) Well, honey, we're out of milk. Can we get by Is there any other way to get by? I mean, is there any, is there a milk substitute? How about the neighbors, you know? I mean, people say, oh, that's all the way in Visalia. Oh, okay, I'll get my GPS going, see if I can figure out how to drive that far on one tank of gas, you know, and stuff. And, you know, there's a mentality that we have here, and I think it kind of, it permeates. Yes, it's a long ways, you know, in between points. Well, what has God called you to do? See, that that's the, what is God telling me to do? Then I submit to that and none of that. It doesn't matter how far, how, how near, how much the cost, how little the cost. And sometimes we just get crusted over. We're not hearing, we're not listening. And, and, and so if there's no sacrifice in your life at all, then you've got a problem because the Bible says we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. That's our reasonable service. No one's asking us to be Paul the Apostle. And to go all around the world with no family and fewer friends and all of that. I mean, you know, there are, there are people raised up to do that. That's fine. God's just calling me to, to be a pastor of a local church, you to be a Christian businessman or woman or a housewife raising your children or a student in your school. But in those venues, there needs to be a quality of submission, And I think that we, if we're not careful, that's where we go soft. And when we go soft, we grow hard and we become like these Sadducees in the midst of the Sanhedrin. This is why we don't see the miraculous. We we don't want to. We don't need to. We're in our own comfort zones. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for these things. We've had some fun with them, and Lord, I think you intended us to because you're a good and gracious God. At the same time, Lord, uh, each of us, we love you, and we, we, w- we want to be these men. We really do in some senses. We, and so I pray that you would work in our hearts, on our hearts, and show us, Lord, right where we're at, in the things you have called us to do, that we would be set free to worship you and to serve you, to be submitted to you, Lord, in this quality way so that we would not be those who covet the world and the things of the world and become useless in our service so good of you lord to speak to us by the still small voice of your spirit and i pray that um, each of my brothers and sisters here lord would take what is good uh, be good Bereans good students of your word take what is good and apply it to themselves if there are unbelievers here lord those who have not yet come into your kingdom I pray that you would draw them by the gracious power of your love just in these last few moments of our service together of our time together this morning I am I am going to speak to unbelievers while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed we continue to pray if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you're not a believer you're not sure that if you died you would be in the presence of Jesus Christ and God the Father or you're trusting in something other than his sacrifice for your sins Uh, then the Lord is here seeking to draw you into his love you're not here by accident you're here by divine appointment so that the Lord can show himself to you in uh, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Lord stands at the door of your heart and he knocks, just like he would be outside your door later on today. You have to get up, open the door, and let him in. And once he comes in, he cleanses, he blesses, he refreshes, he fills. He shows you life and life more abundantly. This world and the things of this world, as you pursue them, they'll always trick you and deceive you. You'll always fall short of any real and true and lasting satisfaction. You need Jesus Christ. And so as we continue to pray, we're going to sing through a chorus. And then at the end of that, I'm going to ask if you're here and you would like to know Christ as your Savior, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand so that we can pray for you. So be thinking about that, meditating on that. Allow the Holy Spirit to have his work in your heart. Let's sing together.